Let's go to the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we will never know how much it costs to see our sin upon that cross. Thank you that we will never experience that because you stood in our place and you experienced that. Thank you that you have given us light, you have given us life, and you have given us eyes to see that and to worship you for it. We thank you for your word that illumines our minds, that causes us to be born again, that causes us to see the reality as you see it. I ask the Father, Lord, that now as we go to your word, I pray that the Spirit would work in this time. I pray, Father, that these words that were penned so that our faith would increase, that our trust in Christ would increase, I ask, Lord, that you would do that. I ask, Lord, for every person here that those who are alive in the Spirit and those who are worshiping you, I pray that we would see greater glory in Christ. I pray that we would see reality as you have displayed it in this passage. And I pray for those who are in darkness and perhaps even here today who are darkness. Lord Jesus, I ask that your light would shine. I pray that you would open eyes so that they would see glorious Christ. Because in him and in him only there is life. I ask that you would give me grace to walk us through this passage of scripture so that you would meet us here. Because your word is alive and active even today. I ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Gentlemen, this is a football. It's one of the most famous quotes in sports history. It was spoken by Vince Lombardi on the first day of the training camp to a team of professionals who previous year were playing for a national championship. These were not people who were first day in their job. These were experienced men who came for training camp to win another Super Bowl. When they showed up, they didn't expect to hear, gentlemen, this is football. And yet that is what they got. Now Vince Lombardi was onto something when he began his first training day with these words. You see, it is often important to stop and to look at the basics. The very basics. Because you see, our minds and our lives, they are preoccupied with so many things that are vying for our attention. Might be your job, might be your health, maybe bills, your children, entertainment, ministry, Super Bowl, hundreds of other things that are clouding your mind. And sometimes you need to just step back and look at something that is most important. Now, I'm not saying these things are not important. But I am, I am saying that they're not all as important as the main thing. That's why it's necessary to stop and assess our lives and our walks in light of what truly is important. However, the problem is that many people have different assessment of what is important. For many people, perhaps their family is the most important thing, and therefore everything in their life revolves around their family. For others, it might be job. For others, it might be fitness. And all those things are orbiting around what they consider to be the most important thing. Now, I would suggest to you, no matter who you are, no matter what stage of life you are, that there is one most important thing that is most important for every single person. And that most important thing is your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That is the most important thing. And when I say relationship with Jesus Christ, I mean that you know him as your savior and that he knows you as his own because you do have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The relationship that I'm talking about is that you would address him as your Lord and he would look to you and say, you are my child. See, last week we began the study of this gospel where John presents to us Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. And therefore it is fitting for John to begin by presenting Jesus Christ. What John says in these opening verses is about as simple as, gentlemen, this is a football. He gives you concise, simple statements, and if you grasp them, you will understand who Jesus Christ is. Last week, as we looked at first three verses, we examined four claims that John made. Claim number one, Jesus is eternal. Jesus existed before there was beginning. When he says, in the beginning was the word, he says, you go back as far as you can to the very beginning, and the word already was. Jesus is eternal. Not only is Jesus eternal, John claimed that Jesus is distinct from the Father, because he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. If he was with him, he was not him. Therefore, there were two distinct persons before there was a beginning. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is distinct from the Father. The third claim that John made is that Jesus is God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. While he was distinct from the Father, he has the same essence as the Father. And the fourth claim that we examined last week is that Jesus is the Creator. No, Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is the Creator who spoke all things into existence. Because verse 3 of chapter 1 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And based on these four claims, I defended this proposition last time. You must believe in Jesus Christ because he is eternal God, the creator of all things, visible and invisible. Today, I want to build on this by examining two more claims that John makes in verses 4 through 9. And these claims are these. Jesus is life. And number two, Jesus is light. And in light of these claims, John continues to build his compelling case for Christ by arguing that you must believe in Jesus Christ because he is the only source of life and light in this world. You must believe in Jesus Christ because he is the only source of life and light in this world. Join with me as I read first 13 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's begin with the first claim. Jesus is life. Look again at verse 4. John says this, In him was life. Now we must not confuse John's conciseness with shallowness or lack of theology in this verse. we got to remember that John is a fisherman. He's not a theologian, if you will. He's not a philosopher. He's not orator. But think about this. By the time John was writing this, he spent a couple years with Jesus, two to three years, three and a half maybe, and then he had about six decades to process everything that Jesus taught him. He's an old man by now. He's writing this in his late 80s. And so he had a lot of time to process this. And as you read through these statements, these little short phrases, it's almost as if they're like little hyperlinks that you click on and then it opens books that you can't read or comprehend. That's what he says here, in the beginning was the word. Boom, one statement. The word was with God. And this verse, in him, was life. Now let's examine this phrase. Now obviously him here refers to Christ because he's the antecedent here because he's talking about the word. In the beginning was the word, the word, the word. Now when he says in him, he's referring back to the word because he's the subject of this verse. But what does that mean? What does it mean when he says in him was life? Well, let me first give you my conclusion and then I'll show you arguments for it. When John gives the simple phrase here, in him was life, John is saying this, Jesus is self-existing God who is the source of both physical and spiritual life. Jesus is self-existing God. Now first, notice the connection here between verses 3 and verses 4. John has just concluded that all things came into being through Christ. This includes all animate things and inanimate things. All things that came into being, all things that were created, anything that's not eternal, and that's everything outside of God. He says it came into being because of Jesus Christ. The only reason why there is life on this third rock from the sun is because Jesus Christ has spoken into existence. That is the only reason why there is life. From this tiniest cell to a blue whale, which I found out can weigh up to 400,000 pounds this week. Everything exists in the world because Jesus said a word, because Jesus spoke it into existence. Now, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are alive today and you're sitting here in this room because Jesus gave you life and because Jesus sustains your life. Whether you believe this or not, this is the case because Jesus is the author of life. Second, notice this word was, in him was life. We talked about this word last, last time, and it's the same word that John used previously in this text. This talking about ongoing reality in the past. In him was life, continually ongoing. If you want a theological term for this, you can read theological books and you'll have people talk about aseity or God's self-existence. What does it mean when we say that God is self-existent? Well, simply put, we can say it this way. God does not depend on anything or anyone to exist. See, that's what separates him from all creation. We as creatures, we depend on God for our existence. 
At any time, God can step on your air hose and you're gone. At any moment, whenever he wants it. And you see, you are dependent upon him for your existence. But guess what? God is not dependent upon anyone. He is God. He is self-existent. Therefore, when John says, in him was life, what he is claiming actually is that Jesus is God. The same life that God the Father has in himself, the same life exists in the Son. And therefore, the Son exists not because the Father sustains him, but the Son exists because he is self-existent God. He does not need anyone or anything for his existence. This is another way of saying that Jesus is God. I mean, it's almost as if as John working through this, he's trying to exhaust all ways of saying, well, how else can I say that Jesus is God? Well, let's just say it this way. In him was life. He is the author of life. He is the source of life. He is self-existent. Now, John will elaborate on this more in his gospel. If you want to turn there, go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking of his relationship with the Father. And he says this in verses 25 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Well, notice the first claim. He says, people who are dead will hear my voice and they will live. Why? Because I am the giver of life. That's the claim that he makes in verse 26. And then listen to verse 26. Or 25. That's the claim in verse 25. Verse 26 says, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so, and this is the phrase that has caused some people to stumble. Because it says here, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. You see, some people take this verse and they use it to prove that Jesus is somehow inferior to the Father. But you see, you have to read this claim in light of what we read in John chapter 1. Now, obviously, this cannot refer to incarnation or anything that has happened after incarnation. Because in John 1.1, before incarnation, because incarnation happens later on, verses 9, and keep going. Before that, Jesus already had life in himself. Therefore, whatever claim Jesus is making here, this has to do with something that happened in eternity past. In the eternity past, as the verse says here, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself now, while we cannot fully comprehend exactly what John means by this, people have been wrestling with this for many, many years. We're not the first ones to come along and say, well, let me try to figure out Trinity. People have been trying to do that for the last 2,000 years. Now, on the one hand, you will not be able to figure it out. And you might be disappointed by that, but guess what? It's actually a good thing that you can't figure out because... If you can figure out God, then he's not much of a God, is he? If you can figure out him with your puny mind. But on the other hand, you can go to the other extreme and say, well, I mean, if if we can figure out, let's just throw our hands in the air and say, forget it. Nobody can figure this out. No. You see, there are things that God revealed to us. There are assertions that Scripture makes about the Father, assertions the Scripture makes about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit. And so what we have to do is we have to wrestle with those. And while we may not be able to fit them into a perfect puzzle, we will say, well, yes, Scripture says this about the Father, it says this about the Son, this about the Holy Spirit. Exactly how do I square that circle? I don't know. But guess what? The Bible makes those assertions. And the Bible doesn't call you to understand everything, but it does call you to believe everything that it teaches 
And so when we come to the Trinity, when we come to this understanding of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it is sometimes difficult to grasp this, and you will have terms that theologians use to try to explain it. For example, if you read books, you'll, you'll come across terms like, referring to the Father, He is eternally unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten, and the Spirit is eternally proceeding. And you're like, what in the world is that? Like, why do you... But you see, what they're trying to do is they're trying to wrestle with these things that are clearly revealed in Scripture. And like, how do you explain that? What does it mean that the Son is eternally begotten? Because there are terms that you see. He's the only begotten Son, which distinguishes Him from you, who is also the Son of God. And so you might say, well, how do you understand that? How do you wrestle with that? But you see, our job, like I said, is just to see what does the Scripture teach about that? When you come across, when you come across these terms, and you will... Just before you, you know, get too confused about it, these terms simply speak about the relationships within the Trinity. Because you see, Trinity existed prior to creation. I mean, God never had a beginning. So prior to about, what, 6,000 years, when God caused everything to happen, He existed forever before that. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they related to one another. There was a relationship there. And the Father was also the Father. The Son was, the Father was, the Father was always the Father. The Son was always the Son. And the Spirit was always the Spirit. And so in the way they relate to one another, the Scripture tells us some things that we can like, okay, I can see how that worked. But then again, how does that work? And you'll have that confusion, and that is true. Listen to Nicene Creed. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says this, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of, of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And you're like, what, what does that mean? And you see, what they're trying to do is, like, okay, yeah, he is begotten because he is the only begotten Son of God. But begotten that does not mean made. In our understanding of being begotten, it always speaks of creation because you, I mean, Abraham begot Isaac, right? That's how we understand this. But begotten does not mean that son was created because John 1 tells us that he's not created. And yet, the son is from the father. The spirit is sent from the father and the son. That's why you have eternally unbegotten is the father. Eternally begotten is the son. Eternally means that it was forever like that. But yet he is from the father. That's why he's eternally begotten. And eternally proceeding because the spirit proceeds from the son and from the father. And that is true for all eternity. Now you're like, man, this is a mess. How do you understand this? Well, yeah. You can fry your brains thinking about this. But you see, if you're going to take everything that scripture says... And you're going to try to fit it into a puzzle. Like, okay, that's what Scripture asserts. Can I understand that? Not perfectly. But does the Bible claim that? Absolutely. So when you read this text, and the text says here, the Word was with God. Well, there was God, and then there was the Word. Well, obviously, there are at least two persons of the Trinity. Now, it says the Word was, which means the Word is eternal. So you can see, you can deduce these basic truths about the Son by looking at the statements that John makes here. So what does John say about the Son here? That the Son is eternal Son from the Father who eternally existed and He eternally had life in Himself. He is self-existent. Another way of saying Jesus is God. Now if Jesus is God, and verse 3 says that He's the one who spoke all things into existence, then Jesus is the one who gives life to all things now look at this word life. There are two different words in the Bible for life. The first word is 
from which we get the word biology, bios. And we're talking about physical life here. This word is not used in the Gospel of John, but it is used in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all things, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, that first word, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The word that is actually used in the Gospel of John is the word from which we get the name Zoe. Zoe, same word. Zoe means life. And that's the word that John uses here. He says, in him was life. And while there is overlap in meaning between these two words, the emphasis of this second word is on the quality of life that God has in himself and that he shares with those to whom the offer of the gospel is extended. Listen to a sample of John's use of this word, the most famous verse. For God so loved the world. They gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice there's a quality of life. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. 539, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. In John 10.10, famous verse, you know this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. You see, this is the life that John is talking about. I mean, this is amazing that you are invited to participate in the life which God has in himself. This is beyond you know, animal life or plant life, you know, even your favorite pet, it dies and it doesn't live forever. But John says here, the life that I will give to you, the life that I will extend to you, it is life that is abundant life. No, we're never going to be gods, but we are invited to have fellowship with God, to have life that only he can give. Now we just scratched surface here. But what are some implications of this statement here, in him was life? Well, one, as I said already, your physical life is in his hand. If he is the author of life, if he gives life, he is the Lord of your life. And you will not live a moment longer than he determined it. And when he says it is done, nothing will help. No diet, no essential oils, nothing will help. When he says it's done, it's done. And on the other hand, you will not prolong your life just by a minute. Guess what? You can rest in the fact that God has your life in his hand. If you are a child of God, you're bulletproof until the day that he says you're done. And when he says you're done, you're done. Period. But not only your physical life, the second implication is more crucial. Because Jesus is the source of eternal life. In fact, Jesus is the only source of eternal life. You will not find meaning of life outside of Christ. You will not find eternal life outside of Christ. The simple truth will be declared again and again. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John the Baptist gave this testimony. John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
Jesus is not one of many options to try. Jesus is the only source of life. Now this brings us to the second claim. Not only is Jesus life, but Jesus is light. Now I want us to survey verses 4 through 9, because the word light appears in every single verse except verse 6. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 7, He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, while John introduces us here to John the Baptist, I want us to focus primarily on what John says about the light. In the coming weeks, we will zero in on John the Baptist because there is a huge section here beginning in verse 19 that speaks of John the Baptist, and thus we'll pay special attention to him. But as we consider the concept of life, I want us to simply think about two things. I want us to think about its nature, and I want to think about its purpose. Another way of saying this is what is it, and what does it do? What is life, and what is, what is light, and what does the light do? What is its nature? Look again at verse 4. In him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. First, there is a sense in which we cannot make a distinction between life and light because they can't be separated. Because as the verse says here, in him was life, and that same life was the light of man. Here's a way to think about this. Light is manifestation of life. Light is manifestation of life. Now, it isn't that the word contained life and light, but that the word was life and light. Now, just to highlight what we said already, notice that this life is eternal. Because this word is eternal, then every aspect of his character and of his being is also eternal. Notice the same word was is used here as it was in the previous verses. Notice John repeats this idea again. If you skip down to verse 9, notice it says there was imperfect active indicative, the true light which coming into the world. So in one sense, we can say that light is manifestation of life and there are this one and the same. But notice, second, just like life speaks of Christ's self-existence, light also speaks of his deity. Remember when we said when Jesus was life, it speaks of his self-existence, which only God has, and therefore Jesus is God. Now when he says that Jesus is light, it is another way of saying that Jesus is divine. It's not a new New Testament concept, but God throughout the scripture is identified as life and light. Look at Psalm 27:1. Listen to this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 36 combines two concepts together. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. 
You see, God manifested himself in the Old Testament as light. And now John takes that imagery and he applies it to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. St. John wrote 1 John. And you remember this verse? This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is what? Is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. God who is light and dwells in unapproachable light, often revealed himself as light. Third, this concept of light speaks of holiness and purity. Now this becomes clear when you consider the contrast that John makes here between light and darkness. It's almost as if John personifies both light and darkness. Notice as light comes Usually people come, right? Individuals come. And here comes the light. And then it says here, the darkness did not comprehend it. Now these two ideas of light and darkness, they will go as these two threads that will run through the entire Gospel of John. Now we can say that in one sense, darkness is absence of light. Is it not? You walk into a dark room, the lights are off, and darkness is the absence of light. You can see this in creation. Remember when God was creating Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. So darkness is invaded by light, and when the light comes in, it dispels the darkness. Now light by nature overcomes darkness, right? However, when we read this context here, darkness is much more than just absence of light. Darkness here is presence of evil. You see, the world that John speaks of and the place into which light comes in, it's not just absent from light, but this place is evil. This place is characterized by sin. This place is characterized by hatred. In light of John 1, listen to these words words in John 3. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds might be manifested as having been wrought in God. You see, when John says that the word was light, he highlights his purity and his holiness. Now, if his nature is such, what does light do? If this holy light comes from God into a dark place, look at verse 5. The light, first of all, shines in the darkness. As we said, that's what light does by nature. As soon as you turn on light, darkness is gone. Now, while verse 4 comes on the heels of verse 3, where John explained that Jesus spoke everything into existence, and he created this world, including light, we have to assert that when John speaks about verse 5, light comes into the darkness, he speaks of much more than just physical creation here. Notice he says here, the light was the light of man. He specifically focuses on people, on individuals. Now, as I said, 
This is a common theme in the, gospel, in the writings of the Bible and specifically in John's writing. In general, as I said, we can symbolize light because it comes from God, who is holy and who is pure. When we're talking about living in the light, when we're talking about experiencing light, we're talking about living in the truth and walking in holiness. Listen to these verses. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 6, 23. For the commandment is a lamp... And the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. We begin our service by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. For what purpose? So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Light is the truth. Light is purity. Light is holiness. And on the other hand, darkness is everything opposite of that. Darkness speaks of falsehood. It speaks of sin. It speaks of dominion of devil. Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Purity with sin? None. And the reason why darkness is characterized by sin and by hatred, it is because it is controlled by a prince of darkness. You see, this world is controlled by the devil. Satan operates the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Light invades the kingdom of darkness and takes people who are captives and transfers them to a different kingdom. Therefore, everyone who is under the control of the devil is walking in darkness. 1 John 2.11, but one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going. Why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Not only are you walking in darkness, but you are darkness apart from Christ. Ephesians 5, 7, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of life. So apart from Christ, you are darkness. And you walk in the darkness because you are a subject of the kingdom of darkness that is controlled by the Satan. So what does the light do? Well, the text says here, the light shines in the darkness. Now, although John does not speak explicitly of incarnation until verse 14, in these verses here, he lays the groundwork for that reality. You see, you cannot read these verses second time after you have read the Gospel of John and not make these connections. You just simply can. John repeatedly refers to Christ as light in his Gospel. Besides the references that I already read in the first three chapters, listen to these claims. John chapter 8. And Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of this world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
John chapter 9, verse 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John chapter 12, perhaps his final day before Jesus completes his public ministry, he says these words, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Light comes into darkness. And how did darkness respond? Look at our verse, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. If you have ESV, it translates it this way. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, these are the two primary meanings of this word here. It can mean to understand or to grasp, or it can mean to acquire or to overpower or overcome. You probably have a footnote somewhere in your Bible that tells you that most likely the meaning here is to overcome or overpower. Now, overpower here and overcome, it fits better with the context because in what sense does the darkness try to understand or comprehend the light? It's not. I mean, if anything, the darkness understood light too well because what did they do? Kill him. The darkness killed him, and they thought they won until Jesus walked out of the tomb, Right? So when he says here, the light comes into the world, he's saying here, the light comes in, and darkness did not overpower him. Darkness darkness does not have ability to overcome the light. And notice this is a summary statement. This is at the very beginning, before before John lays out anything about Jesus' ministry. From the very beginning, he says, listen, let me tell you how the story ends. Darkness does not win. The dark side is not going to win, right? If you want a reference. It will not win. Why? Because light overpowers the darkness. In fact, the darkness already lost. Now, it still wins battles here and there, but the war has been won. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, it's over for darkness. Now, we still live in the world of darkness. It is still ran by Satan. It is still controlled by his minions and demons. And so they do win battles here and there. But guess what? John says from the very beginning, darkness does not win. Light overcomes darkness. And then John is going to go through the whole gospel, 21 chapters, explaining how light overcomes the darkness. How does the light overcome darkness? It is when the testimony about the light is proclaimed in darkness that God opens the eyes of those who are in darkness so that they would see the light. That's why I think it's fitting here that John inserts here the first witness to the light, who is John the Baptist. Now, as I said, we will look at him in coming weeks, but I want you to see that even one as great as John the Baptist was not equal to the light. I think that's the point he makes here. Yes, John was a great man. He was a great man because Jesus said of him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise. And yet, in this opening statement, he says, you, want, you know the greatest man, John? You can't put him in the same league as the light. They're in different categories, completely different categories. 
Now, it's uncertain why John felt the need to add this into his prologue. Perhaps there were still followers of John the Baptist who didn't get the memo that he was not the Messiah. You remember about 20 years later, after this, after Jesus' resurrection, Paul goes to Ephesus and he finds disciples of John the Baptist. What? And so John inserts it here saying, guys, even the greatest prophet, the greatest New Testament, the first New Testament prophet, John the Baptist, he's not in the same league as the light. Jesus is superior to John the Baptist in every way. Consider these contrasts. One, Jesus is eternal. John had a beginning. Because if you look at verse 6, it says, There came a man. Now remember that word came I pointed out last time? It's not that same word was. The word is became. Literally, man had a beginning. The word was. John the Baptist, though he was great, he became. He had a beginning. Just like every single one of us has our beginning at conception, so it was with John. Yes, his conception was miraculous, right? You remember angels came to Zacharias and all that, that whole story. Yeah, God was, but he was still man. And that is the second contrast, that Jesus is God, John is a man. Because there came a man sent from God. John the Baptist, as I said, was a great man, but he was a mere man. Jesus was a man. But he's not only a man, right? Because John has just explained to us Jesus was God before the world was. John was a man. John had a beginning. Jesus didn't have a beginning. And Jesus was not a mere man. And this leads to the third contrast. Jesus is God. John was sent from God. Because our verse says here, there came a man sent from God, whose name was John. Remember when Zacharias was serving in the temple and Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he will have a son. And Zacharias says in Luke chapter 1 verse 18, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. No need to worry, Zacharias. Age is not a problem for God. Right? And then John the Baptist comes. He's six months older than Jesus. He had a miraculous conception, if you will. It was a natural conception, but... She was out of her time to give birth. And from conception on, John was a man sent from God. In fact, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 15, John was filled with the Holy Spirit even when he was in his mother's womb. Wow. He was a man sent from God. Jesus was God. Not only that, fourth contrast, Jesus is light. John is a witness to the light. Because verse 7 says, he came as a witness to testify about the light. Verse 8 says, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Notice this repeated idea. It is as if John is trying to disprove something. Because some people try to make something of John that he was not. And John says, well, let me, let me, John, the writer of the gospel says, let me explain this to you. That John is not, John the Baptist is not in the same league as Jesus Christ. John already declared that Jesus is light. And here is John's, John the Baptist's work. This is his job. He came as a witness to testify about the light. This is another key concept in the Gospel of John. And we will come across these words again and again. The word witness, testify, testimony will appear repeatedly throughout the book. This is a courtroom language. Because you remember what John is trying to do? John is trying to build case for Christ. 
And so he's going to call witnesses to the stand who will present their testimony regarding the person of Christ. And he says, you should believe in Jesus Christ because these credible witnesses are giving you testimony as to who Christ is. You see, witness simply restates facts concerning what he has seen and heard. Witnesses, they do not give their opinions. They do not give their analysis. They are simply telling, this is what I've seen and this is what I've heard. And so John is saying, you're gonna, I'm going to build a case for you. I'm going to present to you all these credible witnesses who will tell you about Jesus Christ. Now just if you step back and think about this for a moment, you wouldn't think that the light would need a witness. I mean, I don't need anybody telling me that that light is shining in my face. Why? Because I'm not blind. But guess what? If you take a blind person and you put them here, and you turn those lights to their maximum, then somebody would need to tell him that, hey, there's light shining in your face right now. Because a blind person does not see light. So when he says here, John came as a witness to testify about the light, this is a testimony about the world of which John is going to speak. He comes into the world, and the light shines in darkness, and then you need to tell those people in darkness that, guess what? Light is shining. You need to hear this because you need testimony. Why? Because the world is blind. Because the devil blinds sinners. That's the reality. And John's mission, as he says here, is to come and to convict the world of their blindness and their self-righteousness. They couldn't see the light, even while he was in their presence. Remember in John chapter 9? Jesus heals a man who was blind from birth. And that was a metaphor in and of itself. And then the Pharisees who were with him, they ask him, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Well, guess what? They were blind. They just couldn't see. They couldn't see the light. Now, here's a fifth contrast between John and Jesus. Jesus is the object of faith. John is simply a proclaimer of Jesus. You will see this as we study the testimony of John the Baptist that he was one who kept saying, listen, guys, I am not it. I am not the one. Perhaps his most famous words are these, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John didn't walk around telling people to believe in him. John walked around saying, listen, I have come as a witness to testify to one. In our very chapter here, you skip down to verses, verse 15, verse 19. He's going to say, hey, there is a man stand, who stands among you. He has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And you're like, oh, what? You're older than him, six months at least, right? He's like, no, because he lived forever, because he's God. And John always pointed people to Christ. You see, the object of your faith is Jesus Christ, not John the Baptist. You have to believe in Christ. Look at verse 12. We'll look at this next time. But as many as received him, who's that? Christ. To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 3.18, he who believes in him, that is Christ, is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 6.29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's why this gospel was written. 
so that you would believe in Christ. Why? Because Christ is the object of your faith. You believe in Christ because it is only Christ who has life to give. Now, this is the first use of belief in the gospel. And that is the most repeated word outside of the word no. 98 times he's going to use this word believe. 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 Why? Because I'm writing these things to you so that you may believe. John came and he's simply pointing to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. If you believe in him, you have life. If you don't believe in him, you don't have life. I am nobody. He is everything. He who comes from heaven is above all. That's, that's, that's his testimony. And he'll be proclaiming that again and again and again. Jesus is the object of your faith. Light comes. Light shines in the darkness. And the testimony concerning light goes out to those who are in darkness. Finally, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. First, notice how John qualifies the light. He says, There was the true light. There's only one true light in the world. As we said, it's not John the Baptist. It's not Muhammad. It's not some other religion. No, there's only one true light. You read philosophers of this world and they promise to you enlightenment. Satan and his angels, they come as angels of light, do they not? They dangle all kinds of flashy lights in front of you in order to distract your attention from the true light. As we read today, his full-time job is to keep you in the darkness so that you would not see light. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And as we'll see next week, that unless God intervenes and opens one's eyes, he will never see the light. He does use witnesses. He does use testimony to do that. But God has to act. Second, we have to ask the question here in verse 9. What is coming into this world referred to? Now, if we take this phrase in the context of John's gospel, it cannot mean anything other than incarnation. Because, I mean, there are people go all over the place trying to explain this verse. Because it says here, the light comes into the world and enlightens every man. So some some say like, well, this has to speak of the creation. Because when people come into the world, they already have general revelation, which gives them some light of the truth. But if we read these words here in the context of John... We have to say that this is not talking about creation. This is not talking about general revelation. Coming into the world has to speak of incarnation. Because you will see, I have come into this world. I have been sent from the Father. I come in here. Look at verse 11 in the immediate context. He came to his own. What is that referring to? It's talking about incarnation. When Christ comes to his own nation. So coming has to talk about Jesus' coming into the world. Has to talk about his incarnation. So this is a reference to his first coming. Now a few things about this word world. Because verse 9 says, There was the true light which coming into the world. Again, like I said, I mean every word here. You can almost stop here, click on this hyperlink and open a whole book here. Because this word world is going to be all over the place in John's gospel. 78 times you will find this word world in John's gospel. Most of the uses of this word are negative, with just a few exceptions where the word is neutral. Oftentimes, the word is used as this world, 
to separate this system. Listen to John 8, 23. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. John 9, 39, Jesus says, for judgment, I came into this world. You see, you can talk about the world as the world of creation. But I think what John speaks of here is more particular than that. He's speaking of people and the system that governs them. And this, these people and the system is in rebellion against God. That's how John uses this word primarily. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, what does he mean that the world did not know him? In what sense did creation not know him? Well, creation knew him very well, so he can't be talking about creation. He's talking about the individuals who are in darkness. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you. I'm sorry, trees don't hate you. That's not what he's talking about. He says, the world, the people, the system hates you, but it cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it because his deeds are evil. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. John 15, 18, listen to this. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So what is world? World is this wicked system that is ran by the devil, and everyone who is subject to that system is encapsulated in this world, word world. And we said the devil runs this world. He's called the prince of this world. John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's that? Devil. John 14, 30. I will not speak much more to you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. John 16, 11, The Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been cast out. Now, devil is not sovereign. Devil is still God's devil. He's still on the leash, and he can only go as far as God permits him to go. But the system that runs this world is of the devil. And you cannot argue with that. And with all that being said, what is amazing when you read John 3.16, For God so loved, what? The world. Now, this does not speak so well about the world, but this speaks so well about God's love. That while this world is filthy, controlled by the devil, and all the people who hate the light, at the same time, God loves the world. And he sends his son into the world so that if anyone would believe in him, would be taken out of that world and given eternal life. That's what he's talking about. Light comes into the world. Jesus came into the darkness of this world as light. Jesus comes and our verse says here that he enlightens every man. Again, what does that mean? In what sense does Jesus enlighten every man? Again, we can't just pull this verse out of its context and just say, well, enlightens every man, therefore it means every man everywhere. Or is that what it means? Now, since we already established that coming into the world speaks of incarnation, it cannot speak of general revelation because general revelation was available prior to incarnation. Was it not? Yeah. So in this case, he's talking about something very specific. That light 
comes into the world 2,000 years ago. And when he comes into the world, he enlightens every man. Now, in what sense did Jesus enlighten every man in his coming? Now, we know that this cannot mean internal transformation because the very next verse says the world did not know him. You see, if he enlightened you, if you opened your eyes to see the glory of Christ, you would know Christ. But the text says the world did not know him. Listen to how Matthew introduces Jesus' ministry. I think this gives us a little insight. Matthew says this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And he says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice he says there's this dark region. And Jesus shows up there and he begins to preach the gospel of repentance. And he says, upon that dark region, with all those people who hate the light, the great light has done. Now most people rejected that light, did they not? We know that from Jesus' ministry. Most people on whom that light shone rejected him. So does every man means every man? Well, in one sense, every man means every man here. Now, every man, specifically at the time of coming of Christ, you can say it this way, wherever Christ went, light went. And whoever was in the presence of Christ, every single man on that every single person, light has shown. But in another sense, it cannot mean every man. And the reason why it cannot mean every man and every man we're talking about from Adam until the last man. He cannot mean that. Why? Because Jesus' ministry was confined to a small geographical location. I mean, he was in Galilee. He was in Judea. He didn't travel outside the country. Right? So you can say, what about all those people who were outside of Jerusalem? What about all the Romans? What about everyone else? They didn't see the light. So every man cannot refer to them. What about people who lived prior to Jesus' coming 2,000 years ago? Well, they're not part of these every man. What about people who were already in hell because they rejected the light? Are they included in every man? No. So you have to be careful how in context you read every man. So what John is saying here, when light comes, when Jesus comes, when he, incarnation, that's what we're going to talk about next time. He comes into the world. And whatever the light went, it's shown on the people who are in darkness. Here's a helpful tip. Whenever you come to, uh, to verses that talk about every man or all men, here's a question to ask. Is he talking about all without exception or all without distinction? Because very often, remember that Scripture is written from a Jewish perspective. And very often Jews were like, hey, we are God's people. Gentiles, they're out there. And so for God so loved the world, for them to be like, like really? No, God loves Jews, and if you want to be saved, become a Jew. And so that's why they were surprised when the gospel went forth in the book of Acts. They're like, Gentiles? He's speaking in your language? What? 
Why? Because their idea for 1,400 years, God was a Jewish God, and you wanted to worship him, you become a Jew. Get circumcised, obey the law. That's why they couldn't process that. And so when you come to verses that talk about God loves the world, God loves all men or every man, it's all men without distinction, but not all men without exception. Because there are a lot of people in hell by that time. And it doesn't mean that the light has shone on them. We'll get to much more on this later on. Because in the, our very next passage that we look at next time, we will see that this illumination needs to be accompanied by regeneration for there to be true transformation. The light could shine on you, but unless God works on the inside and causes you to be born again, you will never see the light. He uses witnesses. He uses those who proclaim the light to cause people to be born again. Now we've covered much here. But I want to conclude where we began. Two simple questions. Do you have the life that is in Christ, the giver of life? You see, if John began by saying in him was life, you obviously have physical life because you're here. Otherwise, you would not be here. But you have the life of God in you because you believe in the one who gives that life. Second question, have you seen the light and are you walking in the light? You see, like I said, God shines the light. And he gives you ability to see that light and respond to it. And those who respond are saved and receive life. And then those who are in the light, they are called to walk as children of light. To walk in the light and not go back to darkness. So ask yourself, do I know the light? Have I seen the light? And am I walking in the light. Perhaps there are areas or ways in which we kind of run back to the darkness. We like a few closets in our house where we go in regularly. John says, are you walking in the light? You've seen the light because the light has shone on you. If everything that John said about Christ is true, and it is, this Jesus deserves to be believed and worshipped. We should worship him because he is the son of God. If you don't worship Christ, you are a dead man walking. You could be walking, and physically you might be very well alive, and maybe even fit. But you know what? You're a dead man walking because you have not seen the light. If you have not trusted Christ, believe in him because he will give you life. He will give you life, and he will give you light. And if you do believe in him, rejoice and keep walking in the light. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would enable us to see more of Christ, that our eyes would be opened, that we may behold and see him as he is and see ourselves as we are in his light. Give us grace to walk in the light and to proclaim this light to others. And would you be pleased to take the testimony that we share and cause others to be born again and see light. We depend on you for that. And you're a Savior God who desires and delights in doing that. We ask that you would use us for your glory. Amen.